Welcome to Southside Community Church. Enjoy our Sunday morning message. Preparing an Easter message is actually the most challenging message to prepare the entire year. There's a lot of reasons for that. Sometimes it's because you want to sound compelling, you want to, you know, you want to, you want to sound interesting, you want to hold people's attention. Uh, another reason is because there's people here that maybe don't normally attend your church and um, you don't want to screw it up, you don't want to say something dumb, you want to, you want to say what's true and real about God. Uh, and it, you're, you're teaching the same thing Easter morning every year. And it's something that kind of speaks for itself, that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. We, we don't gather on Sunday mornings to, to, as a time of remembrance and remembering a really good teacher, a really good guy that lived 2,000 years ago, and then he, he died. He took one for the team and was persecuted by the most powerful empire in the world, but he was a really good guy, and that's the end of the story. It's, it's actually... We're here because he was resurrected back to life, and, and in so being resurrected, he proved that he was God, the Son of God, and put out an invitation for everyone to receive life in him and to be resurrected. I mean, it kind of speaks for itself. So there's a little bit of pressure of saying that in a unique and fresh way. Um, but most of all, I love that Easter morning is a time when there's people in the room that might still be on their journey of exploration uh, who aren't really sure what they believe about this Christianity thing and about Jesus being resurrected. And it's, it's a little bit difficult for them to get to that place where they actually accept that. And so I, I love Easter morning specifically because of that. And so this morning I want to offer you a guide to take home and invite you to think about this a little bit more uh, usually there's some type of notes for our teaching on Sunday mornings. This morning there's a front and back sheet of paper. If you didn't get the notes for the teaching and you're interested in following along, um, raise your hand right now and one of our ushers will make sure that you get a copy of those. The reason why they're important this morning is because I'm not going to cover it exhaustively, but I want you to have something if you're still exploring or if you are a believer and you want to go deeper and you're thinking about the resurrection I would invite you to grab one of those and, and take it home and grapple with it and think about it and ponder it and um, even reach out to me or Alex or someone at Southside to go through it with you and to talk a little bit more about it and discuss a little bit more about it. We're going to read John 19, 41 and 21 through 17. You, uh, that is on the sheet of paper that you have or you can just listen. It's the narrative of when it was discovered that Jesus was risen from the dead. Now, we don't have the precise moments that Jesus was raised from the dead. Uh, that would be really cool if we did. If, if Scripture revealed that very moment when Jesus took his first breath again, what was it like? What happened exactly? Uh, that would be really interesting. But we have the moments after when people that he loved discovered that he had been raised. And that's what we're going to read. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark. 
and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. <clears throat> so she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to him, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in. And he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. A lot of significant things happen in gardens in the Bible. And this is kind of like the epicenter of all the significant things that happen, the, the resurrection of Jesus. And what I want to do this morning is to walk through four significant scenes in Scripture that happen in gardens. And it kind of will give you a, a big picture story about what the Bible is about. And we'll, it'll also help you appreciate this important moment that happened in this particular garden. So we're going to start, start the very beginning of Scripture, the Garden of Eden, which is in Genesis 1 and 2. Um, in the beginning, God created this luscious and beautiful garden. It was a habitat for humanity. Uh, Earth was created to be a botanical dwelling place for human beings, surrounded by beautiful trees and plants and shrubs and surrounded by animals that were friendly towards humanity. And it was a place of real abundance. Humanity had everything they need. I mean, it was at the end of creation, after God had been preparing this habitat, that God created human beings and put them in this garden, which was in the east, uh, named Eden. And there was no curse, there was no pain, 
There was no sorrow, there was no sadness, there was no sin. Uh, there was nothing that hurt humanity in any way. It was a type of temple. The Garden of Eden was like a temple. A temple is a place where God and human beings dwell together in harmony because of God's initiative. And that's what the Garden of Eden was. And not only was it a beautiful place where humanity was able to interact and relate with God in a special and intimate way, it was also a place where humanity was given valuable responsibility. So the Garden of Eden didn't cover the whole earth. It was in one part of the earth. And God gave the responsibility to humanity to take the raw material of this garden and cover the entire earth. So it was one big giant garden. And then cover the entire earth, populate it with people. That was their responsibility, to, to be vice regents with God, people who act in place of a sovereign ruler, people who act in partnership with him and cover the earth with this garden. So it was a place of not only of beauty, not only of abundance, but of dignity with the work that humanity was given to do. Unfortunately, Genesis 3 happens. And now, because humanity decided that they could decide for themselves better than their creator what was good for them. They broke creation. They scarred and marred creation. They damaged and destroyed creation. And they allowed things into creation that hurt people. And the impact of that brokenness, that curse, is far-reaching. And it would take God himself to reverse the curse that humanity brought about into creation. Which brings us to the Garden of Grief in Gethsemane, number two, the second garden. And you can read about it in, the, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is what I talked about a couple weeks ago. Uh, it's where Jesus felt bearing down on him the enormous personal cost that he would have to pay in order to begin reversing the curse that now identified itself with creation. It's relevant to us because all of us in innumerable ways feel the effect and the consequences of the curse. It touches everything from things as silly and simple as sunburns and Torn ligaments and ankles, sprained ankles, moldy cheese, migraines, Stanley's propensity to chew my books. I talk about Stanley. Like, Stanley is our Shih Tzu dog, and he, um, he chewed up my favorite Bible. He chewed up this brand new journal that I got. And now when he's really, he might be doing it right now, actually. Now when we leave and he's, he's really angry and annoyed with us for not giving him you know, all the attention that he deserves as our dog, as one of our dogs, um, he somehow like manages to get books off of my bookshelf and he always gets my favorite ones and chews them up. So we come home and there's books tattered all over the place. That's the curse. Stanley is part of the curse, or at least the way that he's acting is part of the curse. The, the curse also has more serious consequences, depression. Uh, for most people who experience depression, it's not... It's not like you're sad all the time. It's just like you're numb all the time. It's, um, some people call it the ghost of the table. 
It just follows you. It's a cloud that kind of covers over you. That's part of the curse. The curse was a result of and actually increases sin. Uh, Sin is the enemy within us that mutilates our humanity when we act on it, destroys relationships, it cuts us off from experiencing joyful communion with God. The curse brought about death. When I think of Jesus counting the cost in the Garden of Gethsemane, I think of my dad. Because if, if he wouldn't have gone through with the price that he had to pay as a son of God, um, I wouldn't get to see my dad again. The good news for us is Jesus went through with what he pondered in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was crucified, dead, buried, and for a couple days the disciples must have thought they lost. The the Roman practice of crucifixion was meant to maximize two things, pain and humiliation. The crucifixion was not, as it's sometimes depicted, in a private area where there's just a handful of people there. Uh, the Roman crucifixion happened in the most public places in town. It, was, um, it happened in front of busy streets. It happened in the square, the center of town. It, that would be the equivalent to today. And it was humiliating uh, because uh, you were stripped of all your clothes and you were hung up for everybody to see. N.T. Wright says, the cross was Rome's way of saying, we are in charge. It was the ultimate demonstration of power. It was Rome's way of having the last word of anyone who is a threat to her dominion. And it would have worked with Jesus too, except for one thing. Romans thought that the ultimate way to eliminate the threat of an individual to the empire was to end their life because Someone who is dead can't talk. Someone who is dead can't cause trouble. Someone who is dead can't cause an uprising. But what if the person didn't remain dead? What if while they were alive, they predicted that they would be killed and that they would come back on the third day? And what if that actually happened? The Romans never considered the possibility of resurrection. And neither did the disciples. That brings us to the third garden. The garden of resurrection. Everything we believe depends on the reality of the resurrection. I provided in your notes 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 20, and you can read that and ponder that on your own time. It's, it's Paul's argument basically saying to the Corinthians who um, claimed to be believers, and yet many of them were having a hard time believing in the resurrection. And Paul's basically saying, well, why, are you, why would you even want to be a Christian? If the resurrection didn't happen, then why are you interested? Uh, what benefit is it to you? If the resurrection didn't happen, we wouldn't, we wouldn't and we shouldn't be here. I know I wouldn't be here. We would be celebrating the remembrance of an interesting person 2,000 years ago. But what makes Jesus really interesting is that he claimed to be God. He said he'd get killed. He said he'd come back to life, and he did it. 
And because of that, we are promised resurrection as well. Now, there's, there's two resurrections that I want to touch on this morning. And we usually don't talk about the first resurrection on Sunday morning, but I think it's actually really important and almost just as encouraging as a second resurrection. So we're going to talk about that. It's in your notes. It's the first resurrection is inner resurrection. It's our, it's our spirit being resurrected because Jesus himself comes and dwells in us. We are a temple now. We are a holy place now. We are the dwelling place of God. So this inner resurrection can happen right now. It can happen for you today if it hasn't yet. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You become someone new on the inside. This is the first resurrection, the spiritual resurrection. And I want to give you a sampling of benefits of this inner resurrection because I think it's important to think about. It's important to contemplate how are you different or how could you be different if you experience this inner resurrection. One, we are no longer helplessly enslaved to sin. We have the capacity to deny ourselves and grow in goodness. Now, we still battle sin, and we will for the rest of our lives in varying degrees and intensities and in varying ways. But the stink of sin before you receive God's spirit is you can't beat it. You can't win. You can't deny yourself. You are enslaved to it. It has power over you. And when you receive this inner resurrection, when Jesus comes and lives in you through the spirit, sin loses its power. It loses its authority, its control over you. At the heart of growing as a Christian is self-denial. That's what it means to grow as a Christian. You're denying yourself things that are out of bounds. You're denying yourself things that God says, eh, don't do that. That's not going to be good for you or anybody. Self-denial is the heart of growing in Christian maturity. And you can't do it in a permanent and lasting way apart from the Spirit of God living in you. But with God living in you, you can have gradual victory, gradual and permanent victory over sin, over the things that mutilate your humanity, that strip you of dignity, that hurt relationships, that hurt your relationship with God. You can have victory over those things. Romans 6, 17 is in your notes. It says, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. These people that were really committed to denying themselves and they practiced self-discipline in doing that but they couldn't they couldn't deny themselves in a permanent way until they received this inner resurrection another benefit of this inner resurrection is we become a pleasing presence to others there's the fruit of the spirit the fruit of the spirit is love joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness self-control these you become pleasing to be around that's another result of this inner resurrection you become more relational you become more uh, you have a lightness of being about you that's different than before christ was living in you you become um uh less uh your your sharp edges you know start to get smoothed and buffed a little bit uh, people don't leave your presence with more anxiety but less 
Um, when people talk with you, there aren't strings attached to the conversation. People don't feel like they have to perform around you as much. You become a person that is very pleasant to be around. You leave a pleasing wake behind you. That's another result of God's work in you, conforming you to the image of his son through the inner resurrection. And finally, of the ones that we'll talk about today, there's a lot more. Uh, but the final one we'll talk about is our restlessness finds rest in Christ. Restlessness is the constant pressure we put on ourselves to secure meaning, power, and influence by standing out in a way that we believe is important. I remember when I was like in ninth grade maybe, and I remember telling my parents, if I don't get a Division I basketball scholarship, I'm not playing basketball in college. It's not an option, because anything less than Division I isn't the best. And I've got to be the best basketball player in every room that I walk into. It's idolatry. But it's also what caused my restlessness. Because everybody wants to be the best at something when they walk into a room. Um, restlessness is all the ways we try to distinguish ourselves from other people. It's all the ways we try to be interesting. It's all the ways we create an interesting persona whether that's in real life or on you know, social media. All the ways we want to be known as the best at something. All the ways that we want to stand out. And if you want to get to the root of your restlessness, what is it about you that if it were taken away would be devastating to your identity? If this wasn't true about you, if you weren't the most interesting Bible teacher, if you weren't the best prayer, maybe it's physical, you know. Would I be devastated if I was average height? It's a legitimate question. I had someone warn me about that once. When I was getting uh, prayed over for ministry, there was a man that worked with Billy Graham and Youth for Christ, and he was, um, he was uh, I was sitting on a stage, and I was being commissioned, and this man was praying over me, and he whispered in my ear, you're going to you're gonna enjoy probably too much being the tallest person in every room. And that could turn you into a monster. And you, you need to be careful about that because that's not your identity, son. And this was a very tall person. He got it. Would I be devastated if I was average height, if I was average? Is that where my, I secure my identity as, a, as being unique? Maybe it's beauty for you. Maybe it's intelligence. Maybe it's an image that you're trying to project. It takes a ton of bandwidth and energy to maintain an image. It's called restlessness. What if you're free of all this striving? What if because of the inner resurrection that you can experience right now, your heart was truly at rest in Christ? Uh, my, my oldest daughter and I were talking a couple weeks ago and we were just talking about interesting people and I said, you know, the most interesting person in the room I think, is the one who has ceased trying to impress everyone else in the room. That's an interesting person. That's an enigma. That's mysterious. I want to get to know more. That's the potential of walking with Christ. You cease trying to impress people so that you have bandwidth to love them instead. Brennan Manning, in his excellent, excellent book. If you haven't read this, it's a fantastic book. 
and you have to read it several times slowly and probably out loud. It's called Abba's Child. He says, define yourself radically as one beloved by God. This is the true self. Every other identity is illusion. The next is the outer resurrection, and that doesn't happen now, that happens in the future. And if you're here this morning and you're still exploring Christianity, you haven't landed um, on what you believe about it yet, it might be helpful to know that most secular historians don't actually deny that Jesus of Nazareth existed, that he was a real person, and that he was crucified by the Roman government. Like most secular historians no longer try to even deny that. There's so much archaeology, there's so many, many things that have come to light that that's just kind of taken as a, as a given, even for non-Christian historians. What they deny is that he was raised from the dead. But it puts them between a rock and a hard place because they have no explanation for first and second century Christians who gladly embraced death. They acted like they weren't afraid of it. They weren't intimidated by it. I mean, there's, there's letters that have been dug up going back and forth between Roman governors who were perplexed by Christians and asking each other for advice on how to handle Christians. Like, what would you do in this situation? They don't care. They're not, they don't waver by the threat of death. Now, some of them who maybe um, are weak or new Christians or uh, maybe don't really wholeheartedly believe it, they kind of do, and we can get them to turn and, and, and uh, glorify Caesar instead of Jesus. But man, the ones that have been in it for a while... The ones that know what they're talking about, we don't, we don't know what to do with them because they're unfazed by the threat of death. And people see them die bravely and it makes it harder to shut this movement down. These people, many of them, were taught by the disciples and probably other people who hung out with the resurrected Christ. And in fact, many of the first century Christians probably actually, who were persecuted for their faith, who died for their faith, probably actually saw the resurrected Christ uh, because Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 6 that Jesus appeared to over 500 people at one time. He, he had a big public something or something event after he was resurrected. That's a lot of people to see him at one time. If you are curious and you want to hear some great evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, if you're searching, The Resurrection of the Son of God by N.T. Wright is a wonderful book. N.T. Wright, I, won't, I don't go as far as he does in some ways and some other topics, and, um, but this book, he nails it. I've not read the entire thing. I've read parts of it, but I've, people that I respect a lot have read it and said that it's great. And N.T. Wright, this is kind of in his wheelhouse. The Resurrection of the Son of God, N.T. Wright. It's 800 plus pages. It'd be worth reading one page a day for a couple years. It'd be worth your time. It's a pretty big decision. You should spend more time thinking about this than you do your vacation. It will have lasting implications. I think you'll be glad you did it. The Resurrection of the Son of God by N.T. Wright. But the point of this section is to say that we too, if we are in Christ, will literally receive a resurrected body one day. And I love when the Old Testament talks about this. 
Job says, and Job had a tough life. He had a tough gig. <laughs> Job 19, 25 to 27, Job says, for I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. And my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. After my skin's destroyed, I'm buried. I begin to decompose. Yet in my skin, I'll see God. He's talking about the resurrection. Isaiah 26, 19 says, Your dead shall live. It's an interesting statement to make. Your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light. And the earth will give birth to the dead. It's the resurrection. The Bible calls Jesus' resurrected body uh, the first fruits of the resurrection, the first fruits of a, let's say, just a field. There's crops in a field. Back then, they would take the, the first fruits, the, the first of the crop, and they would harvest it, and they would bring it as a guarantee before all the rest of the, uh, the field was ready to harvest. They would take that part that was ready, and they would... They would celebrate it as the first fruits. It was like a guarantee that the rest of the crops would also bear that food. That's what the Bible calls the resurrected body of Jesus. It's there in your notes, 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 26. But what he's saying is this body, this resurrected Jesus is an example of what you're going to receive one day. It's a guarantee of what you're going to receive one day. It's a prototype of what you're going to receive one day. You want to know what your resurrected body is going to be like? Follow Jesus around after he's resurrected. There's not a whole lot to go on. We know that he eats. Uh, we know that he's able to somehow go through walls, and yet he's physical and real. He's not a spirit. He's not a ghost. He has flesh and bone. He was able to ascend and float up into the sky. There's interesting things about this resurrected body. It's worth having a little bit of imagination about and looking into a little bit. I wouldn't go too far because we don't know a lot. It doesn't tell us a lot. But we do know it'll be imperishable. We'll never cry again. We'll never break down again. We'll never decompose again. We'll never sprain an ankle again. We'll never have an allergic reaction again. It'll be interesting. And it's why we gather. It's the only reason we gather. Because Jesus was resurrected. And we will be too one day. The last garden, and I'm not going to spend much time on this one. It's, um, it's a hybrid between a garden and a city. So the Bible begins with a garden and no humanity. And it ends in the book of Revelation with a garden that is also a type of city where there's human activity and flourishing and responsibility and relationships. And this is what we wait for. If, if I were to die now, it would be wonderful for me because I would be in the presence of Jesus. I'd be in paradise with Jesus right now. But we're not going to stay there because the Bible says that the people that are with Jesus right now are awaiting the day that they return and get resurrected bodies and get reunited with others in Christ who will have resurrected bodies as well and who will return to this resurrected earth, this new earth, this new universe. 
That is where the money's at. That's what we're ultimately waiting for. Um, mostly because God will live, us, live with us. I think he'll still be living in us through the Spirit. I don't think we ever lose that indwelling presence of God because that's a type of intimacy that we can begin now that we'll never lose. But we'll see Jesus face to face. We'll see our Redeemer on the earth face to face. 2 Peter 3.13 says, But according to his promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. It's a hybrid. It's a garden city. And then there's a couple more um, passages there that I provide in your notes that you can, they can be a springboard for your own exploration. The Bible says a lot about this, and you can explore it on your own in the Old Testament and the New, and if you want to talk more about it, I'm happy to get together and talk as well. But what I wanted to do today was just give you a big picture and give you something to consider in a document that you can take home and start thinking about these things on your own. My most interesting um, professors in seminary were the ones that you left wanting to learn more. And that's kind of the goal today. And then they would resource you with things. And that's what I wanted to do. So I pray and I hope that this at least whet your appetite a little bit. I'm not going to be able to convince you of this probably in 30 minutes, but you can ponder it and reflect on it and think about it on your own. And we want Southside to be a place where you, you know, it's safe to ask questions. And we're going to try not to give you canned, simplified answers. Um, we want Southside to be a place more and more where most of us are equipped in a sophisticated way to talk about deep, profound spiritual things. We want this to be a place where you feel free, you know, on an individual level to push back a little bit, to uh, admit where you have doubts, um, to admit that this is a tough pill to swallow because, you know, it is. But we want this to be a place where you can find ultimate hope in the reality of what Jesus has accomplished for us. And if, if you've heard enough, and if you're interested now, then you can receive this inner, this first resurrection that I talked about. All you do is, you get to this place in your heart where you say, I'm, I'm tired of trying to make myself an interesting and, and meaningful person. I'm tired of the pressure that that puts on me. I'm tired of um, trying to be a good person apart from you. I, I admit, God, that I don't need to become a good person. I actually need to become a new person. And the way that you do that is you, you look to the cross and you look to the fact that Jesus paid the penalty for humanity's rebellion, including yours. You're part of it. We're all in it together. Jesus paid the price for that on the cross. He received the, the full wrath that we deserved. And then he didn't just take the punishment. He offers us new life by coming back to life. And then he ascends to heaven, which means that he's still ruling over and drawing us to himself today. If you feel that tug, that curiosity, that draw, you can respond to Jesus right now 
and say, I accept, I believe, you are my redeemer, you are my, re- you're, you're my savior, I put my hope in you, I put my trust in you, I can't save myself. And the relationship begins. Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me? And I'm just gonna give a little bit of space for you to have a conversation with Jesus, whether you're doing that for the first time or whether you've been on this path with him for a while and you just wanna know him more, or you just want more of his presence in your life, have that conversation with him in the next moment or so. Father, we live in a a chunk of time where we don't get to see you face to face. We will with our new eyes. We will see you face to face one day, but we live in a, a period of time where faith is required of us to enter in, to take a step into this type of relationship, to surrender our lives to you, to find rest in you, to be made new in you. And I pray that you would help us, if we haven't taken that step yet, to take that step of faith with the assurance that one day we will see you with the assurance that we will receive your Holy Spirit now to begin helping us to become more like you. With the assurance that we can bring heaven to earth now because heaven is not as much a place as it is your presence. So we can bring heaven to earth now inside of us as you dwell with us. Have mercy on us. And come quickly, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. Check out our website at southsideworcester.com.